been since you told the Lord you loved him. Be a good time right now just to close your eyes, begin to make love to the Lord. He's made love to us. He's chose us. He's shown his love. I don't guess there's any way we can ever repay him. I don't suppose any words that we could even say, but you know, he likes us for us to attempt to anyway. He really loves for us to attempt to to love. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we're not doing too bad for half the people being at camp, are we? But I tell you, it seems like we come in just determined that we just wasn't going to push it over the top. <laughs> Do you miss your husband and wives that much? <laughs> huh? Two other Jack. <laughs> Two, another nudge. Well, you better hope you go to heaven together then, because it's going to be awful bad. Well, I don't know. <laughs> Judges 16th chapter. We're going to talk about Samson tonight, at least for a while. I'll chide you a little bit. If I put as much effort in the service as you did, we'd be out in about ten minutes. Somebody say amen. <laughs> well, I don't fall for that. <laughs> I want to read uh, the first six verses. Everybody got a Bible? Judges, 16th chapter. 16th chapter of Judges. You know, the Bible sometimes fascinates you. When you begin to read it, it doesn't hide anything, regardless if it's a chosen vessel or not. It just tells all it knows about it. You need to know that Samson had taken, or they had taken a Nazarite vow, which meant that Samson was an anointed chosen vessel of the Lord. And then it goes on and starts into the 16th chapter and says some things that would make us blush or wonder, really, how could God anoint anything like that or keep anything like that anointed? But anyway, he said, Then went Samson to Gaza, and saw there an harlot, and went in unto her. It was told to Gazite, saying, Samson is come hither. And they compassed him in, and laid wait for him all night in the gate of the city, and were all quiet all night, saying, In the morning, when it is day, we shall kill him. And Samson lay till midnight, and arose at midnight, and took the doors of the gates of the city, and the two posts, and went away with them, bar and all, and put them upon his shoulders, and carried them up to the top of the hill that is before Hebron. And it came to pass afterwards that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up unto her, and said unto her, Entice him, and see wherein his great strength lieth, and by what means we may prevail against him, that we may bind him to afflict him, and we will give thee every one of us eleven hundred pieces of silver." And Delilah said to Samson, Tell me, I pray thee, wherein thy great strength lieth, 
wherewith thou mightest be bound to afflict thee. I think for a few moments tonight I would just like to ask a question. It was asked of every one of us, I suppose, and it has been asked by the church or of the church for quite some time, wherein lieth thy strength? I think perhaps as individuals as well as a congregation should begin to ask ourselves this question, wherein lieth thy strength? I want to make a parallel here for in just a few moments, but the job of Samson, the reason God brought him up and gave him great strength and made a covenant with him that his hair should not be cut or shaven, was his job was to destroy the adversary, which was the Philistines. They'd been arch enemies of Israel. They had tormented them. They had overrun them. And uh, Samson's job, really, and his covenant with God and his superhuman strength was simply for one reason, and that was to kill the Philistines or destroy the adversary. Now, if you begin to look at it, now I know we've heard some incredible stories about how big Samson was, but Samson wasn't any incredible hulk, and Samson wasn't Superman. In fact, he was just really the opposite. He was just an ordinary-looking man. In fact, when you search history, he wasn't really the, the uh, well-muscled individual, wasn't really a man that you would think would be strong in any way, but he was just simply an ordinary-looking man, probably Maybe he looked like me or Jack or Brother Gary or Brother Doug. I don't know if he'd better look like Brother Jewel or Brother Paul or not, but there is a possibility that he might have looked like almost any of the men around here, and he wasn't any superhuman individual at all. And this is what baffled his enemies. This is what baffled his enemies. They simply could not understand. And you'll notice time and time again, they came to the place where they needed to know what made this man tick, what made this man strong, what made this man able to take the jawbone of an ass and slay a whole army, what made this man able to put the gates of the city and the bars all and carry him up the hill. They needed to know so they could put an end to his affliction upon them. And the object was to find out where his strength lies. And once finding it out, then remove the cause. And to obtain their objectives, they went to work on Samson's weakest point. Anybody here tonight know what Samson's weakest point was? Brother Dale. Women. Women. It hasn't changed any, has it? Amen. Still the same. Amen. Even though we're not Samson's, our weakest point... <laughs> His women. Anybody disagree with that, or do you dare to? All right. His weakest point was women. Samson was a sucker for women. You can read that all through there. And uh, even when his, other, his wife, his first wife, whenever Samson set forth a riddle, why, nobody knew what the riddle was, and his wife wept and pressed him sore for seven days. She cried around and whined around and uh, got to pooch mouth, so to speak, until he wearied, she wearied him so much that she finally found out Samson's secret. Amen. And then she told his enemies. And Samson was very much aware of what happened, and you know what he called his wife? A heifer. <laughs> All right, he said, if you have not plowed with my heifer, 
you would have not found out my riddle. Now that's in the Bible. Now that's what Samson called his wife. Now some of you ladies think you can call bad names. I don't know if you've ever been called a heifer or not. Not to your face, I'm sure. Now maybe maybe sometime to, to your back that might have happened. But anyway, it went on Delilah then after the other rocked him to sleep on her knee, called for a man and caused him to shave off the lock of his hair, and the secret of his great strength was out, and his covenant with God was broken. His strength was gone. Now then, that's the end of the story as far as I'm concerned with Samson right here. But I want to make a parallel to the church. Church was placed here on this earth 2,000 years ago, and its primary purpose was to destroy the adversary. It's to bind the enemy. Bind the enemy of our soul in individuals' lives. Bind the enemy of our soul in the world. That's the primary purpose of the church. Now, I know it's disintegrated. I know it's become a social club. I know it's become a place where saints uh, uh, commune with saints and very little communion with sinners are enticing them or living our lives where they would be enticed to come to God or to know the God that we choose to know. But nevertheless, our primary purpose, it hasn't changed for 2,000 years. It has been the same as Samson. It's to bind and destroy the adversary. Now, the church is not any different than Samson was. Church is made up of ordinary-looking people. Quite a strange sight when you begin to look at it. And I've been to several churches all throughout the land, and it never ceases to amaze me what God places together and attempts to mold together. Different branches of society... People with different ideas and different opinions, different uh, backgrounds, so to speak, and yet, by the great program of God, he has chosen that these be molded together and made one. Now, he's in the process of doing this. God, I, I say that the devil needs to look out when God gets this completed, because there is going to be destruction, but he places rich and poor, he places smart and not so smart, and he places all colors... And certainly there's not many as far as the church of God is concerned in comparison to the masses that's out in the world. Now when the church was first born, 120, filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and even after the 3,000 souls were saved, and then 5,000 later on, that certainly wasn't a great number, and certainly they said nothing to be excited about. And whenever you look at what God takes to mold into something, when you look at individuals that God gets, brings us all up from the ranks of sin and from the depths of it, places us all together, the world looks out and says, certainly not anything to get excited about. The devil says that, certainly there's no reason for us to be excited. But then when the church began to progress, when it began to make inroads into the great cities back then, Corinth and Philippi and all of those, and whenever it survived the dark ages and when people would give their life uh, just for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then they began to ask the same question that Delilah asked Samson, and they the world wanted to know, wherein does your strength lie? Where is the strength of the church of God tonight? I realize a lot of us say, well, it's in the power of the Holy Ghost. It's in this or it's in that or it's in something else. But what makes the church strong? We need to begin to watch it wither ever storm. Church history will fascinate you. If you would take time to get a church history book, 
and begin to read it, it would fascinate you how the power of God has motivated individuals and spread revival in places where it seemed impossible for revival to be. And you just watch the church wither every storm. Every power of hell arrayed against it. You watch the church all down through the ages still does rise above every problem. And then you watch it as it bends low, as the storm rages. Only after the storm passes to raise straight up and stand just as straight and tall as it ever did. In other words, there's no ocean of despair, no winds of adversity, no powers of hell that can keep the church of the living God down. And seeing this, they begin to ask, where does the strength of the church lie? Where is the strength of the church? How can this be? How can this survive for 2,000 years when everything is against it? I think that's a question we ought to well take in consideration tonight. One ingredient that God has placed in the church, and it is not news to us, but I think our inability to recognize that it is there and that the enemy has discovered it. You see, he went right to work on the infant church to discover what made that church be like it was. What made it able to heal the sick and to raise the dead and to give limbs where there wasn't any limbs and to the main command them and to the devils point a finger in their face and curse them in Jesus' name and liberate the captives. And they were hard-pressed to find out what made ordinary men giants in the land. And they set the work, first of all, to find out what made this church what it is. Now, the enemy's not seeking to find that out. He already knows. He's already found it out. It didn't take him very long with his hidden miss method of motivating and moving upon hearts and lives to find out what made the church powerful. And he's found this out, and he keeps working upon every congregation upon every individual life, upon every organization. He keeps working and harping upon this one thing. You see, the devil doesn't focus his attention upon as many things as we think he does. He focuses his attention upon one thing. And if he can get that out of our lives, then he has got division, he's got envy, he's got malice, he's got strife, and he has got defeat in individual lives as well as the church. And the thing that makes the church powerful, you take it away from it, and it becomes like any company, becomes like any organization, it becomes vulnerable to everything that comes along, and like Samson, becomes weak, and like any other man or any other individual. We become that way. We're only strong because of God. They're only powerful because of God. We can do exploits because of God. But rob us of that, and then the devil has got us. Now, I'm sure you must be aware of the direction I'm going. I'm not going with the power of the Holy Ghost. I'm going with what that power brings in our life. A power that is not utilized are used as much as it ought to be if ever obtained by any of us, none of us excluded. It's been preached about, it's been talked about, it's been whipped around the bush, and it's been said we need it. 
But I think we need to be aware that it is not something that we can or cannot have at our own choosing. It is a commandment of Almighty God that it be there. And if it doesn't exist in our individual lives and in our church, then we need to begin to look around and see where the failure is and look at us first and get it there, and then exploits will be in our midst. Without it, we'll just weep like any other man. St. John, and you just write these down as I hurry on, St. John 13, 34, and 35 brings to mind some very old familiar scriptures that says, Jesus saying, a new commandment I give unto you. Now, anybody know what that new commandment is? Two thousand years old it has been. What is it? That you love one another. But wait a minute, that's not all. We hurry over that scripture, I give you a commandment that you love one another. But Jesus, as always, qualifies every statement that he makes. He doesn't leave us off of guessing what love is, how it's to be applied, or whether it is love or not. He simply places us on the spot and says, I have commanded you that you love one another. And then he goes on and gives an example of how that love is to exist and to be. He says, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. I sat and looked at that scripture, and I have ministered for several years, and I have built myself, I suppose, up in the fact that I have the ability to love, and I suppose you have too. But I was shocked when I looked at that scripture and was actually honest enough with myself to look at it and ask myself, have I ever loved like Jesus? And somebody said just then it's impossible. Well, if it is, your God has asked you to do something that is impossible. Because he said, I give you a commandment. It's not choice, saints. It's not something we can or cannot do. It is a commandment, he says, that you love one another and you've got to do it as I have loved you. In other words, we have got to go back to the basics and find out what the love of Christ was. I would take all night, I suppose, to point scripture after scripture to find out how the love of Christ was. But one real simple quotation, I suppose, I word or be that he loved me enough that he was willing to die for me. He loved me enough that he was willing to take my burdens and my sin and my despair and place it on his own shoulders and bear it for me, knowing I was incapable of doing that. And I've looked out over the congregation, ours as well as congregations around the world, and I have looked around and I've seen the churches not being able to produce the results that they should be able to produce. I've watched them filled with the Holy Ghost. I've watched them speak in tongues. I've watched them dance and I've watched them shout. And I've watched them worship. And I've watched them with a pooch mouth. And I've watched them pug. And I've watched them come in uh, uh, with, filled with lethargy and apathy. And I've saw all of these things. But I don't think there's one thing that I saw, and I don't mean to be cruel, and I don't mean to be harsh, and I'm including myself in all of this. I don't believe we've taken time to find out really how God loved. 
Now, I know it is impossible to ever love like he did, except we have the same spirit that causes this. But you know, Jesus had a free will. And even with that spirit in there, he had the flesh that could have reacted to situations the same as ours, but he chose willingly to let that spirit produce in him a love that is undefined by the human heart. And yet, here it is. He said, I give you this commandment. I give you this because it is a necessity. I, I think perhaps it's what hinges on the fact of whether we enter into the kingdom of God or not. Amen? I'm going to go so far as to say that we're going to have to some way find this out and then work on ourselves to be able to do it. And you might put this in your hat. I started to say put it in your pipe and smoke it, but we don't want to do that. So you just, just, you just might save this and realize that it is not our choice. We have two choices, but the commandment is God's. And the commandment remains intact as I have loved you. That ye also love one another. Now, Scriptures are harsh. In fact, sometimes I don't think they have any place in our everyday society. I don't think they can hardly find a place in our everyday living or in our everyday churches because they've been minimized. They've been set over the corner and set to naught. We have uh, wrapped ourselves in the security blanket of our failures. And we never fully face the fact of what Jesus is wanting in our lives. And I think tonight, if I can at all, and sometimes it's impossible to some of us, but if I can at all, I would like to press upon your mind that you have to find out how Jesus loved. What kind of a love motivated him? What made him suffer the way he suffered? What was about him that made him willing to do these things for me? knowing that there was no way in the world that I could ever repay him, and yet he did. You know, it's easy for you and I to do favors for one another when we feel like that you're able to reciprocate. But find an individual that you know there's no way in God's green earth that he can ever return that to you and still bestow upon him your labors, your prayers, and your concern, and your love, and be willing to give it your life. Now, by that, I don't mean that you have to go to the grave. I mean you need to live your life in concern. Locking yourself in a prayer closet once in a while, hanging your telephone up from your daily gossips, turning your television off from your uh, home study programs of the evening. Amen? That institution, nothing in the world. In fact, the business is, it places more things in the mind of men and women together, mostly women because they're at home. If the men were at home, they'd do the same thing, no less. And it places more problems in the home than I know of. And you need to turn your soap operas off and find a place in God to ask His help upon some unfortunate individual. You see, Jesus could have taken time to do exactly like we do. And yet the Bible is very basic as it challenges us in John. It says, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, 
He is a liar. I'm reading his scripture. Amen? Or somebody said, I don't really hate them. I just don't like them. <laughs> Amen? You know when you do something that would hurt and hurt a man's character, a woman's character? And you do something that would put them down and you say things that would hurt or destroy them? Don't you know that's a borderline case of hatred? Now you can camouflage it all you want to. And it still boils down to that one thing. If you didn't hate them, you wouldn't be trying to destroy them. And the Bible places us in a category. You're either of your Father which is in heaven, or you're of your Father which is the devil, who is the Father of lies. And it says here, if a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. And then he asks questions. You ever notice that? He said, for... He that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? That's Scripture. How many believe that's Scripture? And that's a question from the lips of the one that we choose to call our God. A question that has challenged individuals, that should challenge us, why, if you don't love your brother whom you can see, how in God's name he's asking now, you know, if there's anything God don't know, that's probably one thing. Because he don't know how you can love your, your how you can love him if you haven't seen him, if you can't love your brother whom you have seen. God don't know how you can do this. And yet, multitude millions claim they can. And we would be honest in our own heart if we could face the same thing and ask ourselves the question, have we hid behind this? Have we really said that we love God? Testimonies, we stand up, I love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and body, and yet in the next breath, if we can't, if we don't watch it, we'll say, I can't stand that individual. Amen? And somewhere or somehow, we're going to have to get with the Bible in our thinking. How many want to go to the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God? How many want to go? And don't you think we have to get with God in His thinking in order for us to go? Regardless of how hard or harsh or impossible it might be? You see, with God, everything is possible. That's with God. And that's the question He's asking us. And we'll deal some more with uh, the love of God in just a few minutes. The first and foremost question in the mind of Jesus. You remember whenever he went to Peter, after Peter had denied him, and after Jesus had rose again? And the first and foremost question in the mind of Jesus, and you can tell by what he asked Peter, was Peter's ability to love. That's the first thing that Jesus wanted to find out. Peter, have you learned enough? Have you been schooled enough in your denial with me and your heartfelt uh, uh, resentment of doing that and your failure? Have you learned enough? Are you desirous enough? And he asked him three times, Peter, love us by me. Didn't he? Three times he asked him that question. Now, of course, 
He knew that Peter could not say he agapated him because the Holy Ghost was not there. But he wanted a basic thing to start in on. And Peter answered three times, Lord, you know why then. And then he said, feed my sheep. In other words, he was trying to say, Peter, and God help me, and God help you. He was trying to say, Peter, look, if you can't love, you can't feed. If you can't love, you can't feed. If you can't love, you can't witness. If you can't love, you can't win. He wanted to pound that home in Peter's three times. Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? That's the basic Peter. And Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost that day, laid his life on the line, knowing when he came out of that upper room, he had hid one time in it, and he knew the same people that wanted to destroy him before were still there ready to destroy him, but Peter proved his love when he came out of the upper room the gospel that would challenge their lives and their hearts. You see, Peter proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's not the gospel of compromise and not the patting on the back type that love will produce. Peter proved beyond a shadow of a doubt how it is straight, straightforward, old-fashioned, Holy Ghost, anointed ministry, full of the love of God to save a soul from the pits of hell. He proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is the kind of gospel that the world needed then, and it still needs it tonight. And I think every pulpit ought to be filled with it. A love and compassion, yes, but not with compromise with sin. Jesus never did. And he was the lovingest individual had ever walked on this earth. And yet he come in contact more times than one where he had to be straightforward. And the apostle Peter, out of his love, laid his life on the line and ministered without a shadow of a doubt and began to preach to them. And when they said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter could have said, Well, you know, it's kind of like this. You've been pretty good people. I, after all, maybe you did crucify Christ, but you really didn't know what he was doing and all of this. And uh, maybe there's not too much you have to do. But Peter had already preached to them that they had crucified the Lord of glory. Now, that wouldn't have made any friends any place. You couldn't have made friends and influenced enemies with a gospel like that by pointing your finger to Israel and said, You crucified him, took him by wicked hands, and slew him, and hanged him on a tree. And that was the love pulsating out of Peter in order to reach those individuals. And he did challenge their hearts, and he said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter's message is still the same. Repent, every one of you, and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pardon me, mission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Love induced this type of preaching. Romans talks about love. Romans says love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Now, ill, in our language, couldn't mean too much. But it really takes on some significance when you come from the Greek kakos, 
what simply means love worketh no bad feelings, bad thinking, or bad acting to his neighbor. No bad feelings, no bad thinking, or acting. Love doesn't work this way, Paul is saying in Romans. Amen? And he said, because it doesn't, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Now that's strange that the Apostle Paul would be talking about fulfilling a law that had already been done away with. Now, isn't it? See, he was living in a dispensation of grace. If the dispensation of law and everything that he brought in had already been done away with, what in heaven's name was the Apostle Paul talking about? What did he mean when he said, if you love, you fulfill the law? Now, a lot of us go around and say, I've heard people say, oh, Brother Hoskow, there's so many commandments in the Bible, how in heaven's name are you going to know when, when you've uh, fulfilled them or when you've done them? And I, I thought then, and I've said it, it's very simple. The fulfilling of every iota and every letter of the law is done if you love. And then again, it's qualified. If it's love, it doesn't work any ill or no bad feeling, no bad thinking or acting to his neighbor, and love is fulfilling of the law. You see, it is only the ceremonial part of the law that has ever been done away with. The rest of it stands intact, and Jesus fulfilled it. In other words, every iota of the law, he was obedient to. And friend, the law doesn't bother us one bit until we step outside of it. The law of God is the same as the law of our nation, our country, our, of our town. If you're a law-abiding citizen, you've got nothing to worry about. But step outside the law and Charlie will get you. Amen? But if you just stay inside the law, you see, you're fulfilling the law. You are obedient to the law. But step outside of it and that law stands to condemn you. I don't care if you've lived righteous for 40 years or 50 years, one time outside of the law, and that law still stands in writing condemning you. And God's law is still the same. It still stands. If you're on the inside of it, in perfect obedience to it, then it doesn't condemn you. That step outside of it, the writings for the finger of God is still there, and it's still condemnation to you, and you have to answer to it. Paul says, in his life, it's the love of God. You know, the Apostle Paul went through so much. You follow him on his missionary journeys. You watch him as he's beaten, as he's let out, of, run out of town, as he's let down over a wall in a basket, as he's secreted out of town and hustled out of town, as he's caught and brought before the Sanhedrins and all of this. And you find the Apostle Paul... Sometimes, and one, one place he said that he was pressed beyond measure. Now you get outside of measure and what does that give you? And Paul said, there's no way to measure how I was pressed. The enemy of his soul. And you're going to look at the apostle Paul and you say, Paul, what holds you up? What monsters you? What's back of you? How come you can do this? And we hear the Apostle Paul saying, 
in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, for the love of Christ constraineth me, or bolsters me, or causes me to do what I do. So love for Christ, not love for Christ. I wonder sometimes if we wouldn't be, be well if we would be under constraint. Not succumbing to the fleshly lust, but being obedient to Christ. Love alone. Love alone can accomplish this. Love for Christ. And if you love Him, you love your fellow man. Love for Christ and love alone can accomplish this. And love is not just a word. Love is not just a feeling. Love is a revelation. Amen. Continues to unfold day in and day out. Because the more you love, the more our area opens up and shows you the need for more love. That's what brings us to maturity. That's what gets us to growth. That's what brings us to perfection. It's the finally completion of the revelation of love. The Bible says there's no fear in love. You see, sometimes you can really test your love if you really want to test it according to God's Word. And certainly we ought to put anything we think we have up against the Word and see if it'll stand the test. And I would challenge us to do that tonight. If we think we love, then I want you to put it upside of these Scriptures and see if your love holds water. See if what you have been demonstrating or claiming to have and put into effect all this time, see if it holds, holds water. So there is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. And you'd be surprised the faces of church-going people that I can look into everywhere filled with torment. Divided, unsure, untrusting, doubting, unloving, because they have torment. And fear comes from the word, Greek word phobos, P-H-O-B-O-S. That simply means intimidation of one's adversary. There is no fear or no intimidation of one's adversary in love. But perfect love casts out this intimidation. You see, almost all that the devil does is just intimidation. He can only suggest. He cannot make you do anything. He can only suggest that you do it, and you by your own consensus and willingness do it. You see, a whole lot of us blame the devil for a lot of things that's our fault. He makes a suggestion and says, just why don't you just compromise with old flesh and do this? That's all he can do. You've heard the old saying, the devil made me do it. No, he didn't. He just suggested that you do it. And you, in your weakness, so to speak, just did it on your own. The only time that a per the devil ever makes anybody do anything is an individual that is possessed of the devil. And there's just not too many church people possessed with him. Oppressed, maybe. Depressed, maybe. But not, uh, but not whatever I said. <laughs> possessed. Amen. See, you see, it's easy preaching up here. 
But you must be listening or you wouldn't be laughing. Okay? And then it goes on to say, He that feareth is not made perfect or not mature in love. In other words, he that is intimidated by the devil. <laughs> I wouldn't want to show of hands of individuals that the devil saddles up and intimidates you. Amen? Just simply says, <laughs> let's not do that. Because in no time what I'm liable to do to you if you do. Intimidation. I remember one time I, I was in the seventh grade. There was a big old boy about twice as big as I was. And you talk about in being intimidated, I was. I was intimidated by him. I was afraid of him. Until he finally backed me in a corner. And I found out he was just big. That was all. And that's the way your devil is. He's just big. He don't have any power when you have Christ. And we have no reason to be intimidated by him. When he saddles up to you and brings his idle threats to you, just turn to Jesus. Because it said, perfect love casteth out this intimidation. Love, of course, and there's scripture after scripture, but to shorten this lesson, love is the first thing after you come into God. It's the first thing that the enemy tries to destroy in your life. Almost every one of us was born with an uh, infantile love. I mean, when we were born and received the Holy Ghost, if we received it, there was love there. There was love and trust as a baby. We believed that our, our daddy could do everything. Amen? I remember one time Joy got into argument at school. They talked about how strong their daddies was. And Joy said, well, that's all right. My daddy can pick up a pickup truck. I never did have to prove that, but she thought I could. And that was all that's necessary. But the first thing he tries to destroy is this love. You see, love again, as I said, it's a revelation continually opening itself unto us. We are born with an infantile love, a love of a child. And that love has to continue to grow. The thing you find wrong with a child is basically is when they quit growing in love. And then it turns to hatred and bitterness. And that's a ruination of many a young man and woman. And it's a ruination of many... Christians. It's simply because they have not continued their growth in love. Now Matthew tells us something that is going to happen. Now you already know what it is, and he says, and because iniquity, that's after going over so many things that's going to happen in the last days, he says, and because iniquity shall so abound, what happens? The love of many shall do what? Wax cold. In other words, it lies dormant, unused, and finally it disappears. 
And that's because iniquity is everywhere. The thing that will vex and try a righteous soul and an individual that is born into the kingdom of God is watching iniquity upon every side of them and watching people thrive in this iniquity. And here you are doing the best you can to live for God and they seem to get along better than you do and the love of many waxes cold because iniquity is everywhere. But basically the scripture says when you see these things come to pass lift up your head for your redemption draws nigh. In other words, love like you've never loved before. In other words, put it into action and don't let it be bitter and dormant and destroy. The first letter to the churches in Asia as we close was a letter to the church of Ephesus. And he told them of so many things that they had done right, and he appreciated it. But he said, in spite of this, in spite of it, let's see if we can just go to that. Revelations. Rather than just try to quote it to you, that's, that's in that. In Revelations, the second chapter. I want you to look at all the things that's on the positive side. This is his message. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of seven golden candlesticks, I know your works, and your labor, and your patience, how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and have found them large, and hath borne, and hath patience for my name's sake, hath labored, and hath not fainted nevertheless. Are you reading it? Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. In other words, he's saying, I am going to hold you accountable for that love. In other words, it comes from the Greek word anothen, which means love source. You have left your love source. And when you lose your love source, then there's nothing else left but losing your love. Because your love source comes from the very throne of glory through the power of the Holy Ghost. And he was telling these people, you've lost your love source. You've left the top root of the thing. You've left the foundation of the thing. And he says, you've got to remember where thou art fallen and repent and do your first work. I'll come quickly and remove your candlestick out of its place in spite of all the things on the positive side. Amen? In spite of them. And I think perhaps in closing, I really don't know. I'm wondering if it's really, really got itself dug down in our lives enough to challenge us to a better way of life. You know, primarily, and I mean to chide you with this because it is the truth with us, primarily, we come to church and we figure, okay, I'll endure a message or I'll enjoy one. Some endure, some enjoy. But I wonder sometimes if we really ever mean for it to change us. 
especially when it goes against our flesh. Do we ever leave with a solid conviction in our heart that tonight, right now, we'll start down that aisle of recovery in our lives and try to establish again what it feels like to love without any hindrances, without any hang-ups, regardless of whether somebody rubbed us the wrong way or not. There's clashes of personality. There's people that can't stand me. <laughs> I got news for <laughs> I can't stand them too. But I'm working on this. Amen? And I don't, I don't mind telling you that I just trying to find a message and I just more or less collapsed and I said, God, I guess I must have preached everything in the Bible because I don't know the thing I haven't given these people in 18 years I've been here. And I just throwed it down and opened the Bible like that, and there it was. Staring me in the face. Challenging me. And asking me if I really have ever been able to love as Jesus loved. <laughs> and then I had to be as honest, because I didn't admit it to anybody but God. And so I have to make an open confession. I had to admit that when it really come down to it, I've never accomplished this. In fact, the business, I don't think it's the fact that I didn't accomplish it or hadn't. I think the thing that really bothered me is that I hadn't even been trying to. I'd wrapped myself in my security blanket and don't you look at me like that because you have too. And forgot really that it was a responsibility and that I had a little more thing, a few more things to do in order to do this. And I know I'm not going to be able to do it, but just saying it has challenged me. And I know I'm not going to attain the maturity or perfection of it tomorrow. But at least God has awakened my mind to the fact that I've got a few more wrinkles to iron out, a few more things to do. And once this is accomplished, you know, we look. And we pray, and we cry, and we want the miracles in our church. I want to be able to lay my hands on people and, and see the miracle and see the healing. And we want a body ministry in this church so when individuals come in there at their seat they can receive the power of the Holy Ghost or be saved or at their seat they can be healed or the touch of your hand they can be healed and all these things are possible but not until we obtain this thing that has set our feet and weakened us and departed us and placed us in the position that we're in. Now, I'm not saying we're any worse than we ever was, but maybe I'm saying we're no better. And maybe I'm saying tonight that if we want an answer, the answer is right there. I watched us, and I went other places, and I'll have to say, of course, naturally, I suppose the pastor would think that. I feel like we're, we're as good or better than anyone I've ever been in, but that doesn't mean anything, does it? I mean, so what if we're as good or better and we're not good enough? 
I don't know whether it's in degrees in hell or not, but if there is, it's not going to help us much. But I've, I've looked and I've wondered and I've watched. And I've seen this with our respect our persons. I've seen us hold our, our grudge against somebody. Somebody gets up to do something and we just don't particularly think that they should feel that place. We just sit there just pulling back all the time. Now you're making hard on that individual, but it might be interesting to know that you're making harder on yourself. Because this is not displaying what God wants. You don't have to agree. You don't have to think it's right. But you don't have no right to stand in judgment and hold back and limit the service of God. You have no right to do it. Of course, there's a lot of things about you I don't like either. But I still believe you've got God. And I still believe you was born in love. And I think the failure of us all is that we probably thought we have loved all we could. We wrapped ourselves in that. Said, oh, yeah, I, I love everybody. <laughs> Amen. I love everybody. And yet we've never really, really looked to see what are we actually saying. How do we love? What kind of a love is it? Is it a fleshly love? A fleshly fondness? Or is it the full growth, loving as Jesus did? It's for the church. It's for the individual. Now, I've bared my heart to you, and I've confessed to you. You don't have to confess to me. I didn't have to confess to you either. I only confessed to God. But I confessed to you simply because I thought it would help us to realize that we have just walked up to this platform and we've hid in our own vanity and claimed to love we haven't known what it is I poured my soul out to God when he hit me with that scripture I thought God how can I be that blind how could I, leader of the people, be that blind? And then by the same token, I was sure that I wouldn't stir everybody. But if you stand with me, perhaps there's a need in your life tonight. A need to progress past. Past.